The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. Casnov was one of the last private UK investment banks. It carried a unique mystique and really heft in the city of London. It was famously discreet. Run by former soldiers and old Etonians, Kasnov represented the grand old name of British stockbroking and corporate finance. And this era came to an end when Kasnov was fully absorbed by JP Morgan in 2009, amidst the trauma of the 2008 financial crisis. What lessons can we learn from Kasnov's story? Welcome to In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations and the stories shaping the world of finance. I'm Francine Lacqua. And I'm David Merritt. And this week we have with us the man who was there for it all, Robert Pickering, who was chief executive of Casnov during the key years of change for the company as it was being slowly absorbed by JP Morgan. Over his 23 years at Casnov, Pickering saw the City of London cement its position as a world-leading financial center up until the 2008 financial crisis. Yes, and he has recently published his book. It is called Blue Blood, Casnov in the Age of Global Banking, which details his time at the bank, the dramatic overhaul and restructuring that occurred, and how the City of London transformed over his career. Robert, welcome to In the City. Just dialing it back to when you arrived at Casnov, what was it like working there more than two decades ago? Well, very different from anything you would experience today. The the city generally was a very clubby, male-dominated, effectively closed shop. And that was really what was the impetus behind the Big Bang reforms of 1986, to blow that open. There was fixed commissions in the stock exchange. Uh, You couldn't have any foreign or outside ownership of stock exchange member firms. And Really, it was an environment where firms barely needed to compete, let alone innovate. And the government at the time thought that this was anti-competitive, and they instituted a legal case against the stock exchange, and out went fixed commissions, out went so-called single capacity, so you had to have separation between agency brokers and market makers, and you were allowed to have uh, external capital come into the city. And really, that heralded a a huge round of mergers. So all the old stock exchange firms sold themselves in that time, in the sort of 85, 86 timeframe leading up to Big Bang, to a variety of domestic and international banks trying to form these big financial supermarkets that they thought were going to dominate the scene. Casanova was unique in that it was the only one of the big stock exchange partnerships that refused to sell out. The senior partners at the time thought there would continue to be a demand for independent advice, which was free of the conflicts which were bound to rise in these big integrated firms. I mean, it was a pretty unreconstructed place when I joined the firm in 1985. I think I tell the story in the book. There were 35, I think, partners of whom half were old Etonians. They were all men. All men. All men, needless to say. And I think it was 1994, but before the firm appointed its first female partner. 
But again, it's quite important to understand that even though Casino was a, was a bit of an outlier in that respect, it wasn't that much different from other firms of that era. So if Casino had no female partners, um, one of its competitors like a Rowan Pittman or a Horgovet might have one or two. But it wasn't just all men. They were all from the same school. Well, much. half of them were. Half only, of them. only half. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and the rest of them were from a variety of other public schools. Mm. I mean, you know, you obviously, you would never run a firm like that today. And well, why not? Why not? Well, because I think that if you take all your employees and all your staff from a single stratum of society, then in a connected world, you're not really likely to understand the problems of your clients or be able to advise them properly. And that's before you even get into the whole issue of whether it's right from a kind of a diversity and inclusion basis, which it clearly isn't. Your book really is about this culture clash though, isn't it, in some ways, the, between the new version of banking, mm. the global banking, the JP Morgan, which you know just continues to grow and sort of yeah. swallow up other smaller banks, and this more old-fashioned way of, of, of doing things to do with values and relationships. How did that fight play out over the years with you in the firm? And what survives of that? And it sort of tells a story a little bit about the City of London, doesn't it, about these cultural yeah. clashes? Well, it does. And that's really one of the main reasons I wrote the book. I mean, some people have said they're a bit disappointed I didn't put more anecdotes about stiff collars and lace-up shoes. But I didn't want to write a book that made the firm out to be some kind of sub-Downton Abbey, yeah. P.G. Woodhouse-type caricature, because it was a, a very serious and very successful business. And actually, its story is about the story of the development of the City of London. It went from a very small family-controlled private partnership into being the UK uh, investment banking business of the biggest investment bank in the world. And that whole transition took place in not much more than 10 years. Mm. So I thought that was an interesting story to tell. But the answer to your question, I mean, at the, at the core of it, and I was tried to be at pains in the book not to try to make out that the old way was somehow morally superior to the new way, because the reality is the whole business has gone the new way. And if that's the case, it's at least in part because that's the way the clients want it. But essentially, the core difference is that in the old city, and it wasn't just Casanova, it was all the old merchant banks and brokers, it was about retained relationships. So you had clients, and once you were appointed to, the, to that client, you didn't have to compete for business. If they were doing something, you would be involved. But the flip side of that was that if they wanted you to do something, you had to be there for them. You couldn't say, well, actually, no, I don't want to act for you on this transaction. I want to act for this other company because they're going to pay me a bigger fee or they've got a bigger chance of success or whatever. And that was the way the setup worked. Now, when the Americans came in, and it was predominantly the Americans, although there were some Europeans too, in the late 80s and into the early to mid 90s, I mean, they didn't have any clients, they didn't have any relationships. So what they did was they talked to everybody about everything. And they tried to sell as much product as they could in modern parlance and infiltrate, if you like, their way into the, the councils of these companies. And over time, they were very successful at it. But they've always maintained the freedom, and that's true even today, to the freedom of action to act for whoever they want to in a particular situation. Now, it's a slight oversimplification, but that, and it sounds very arcane, but actually it's a very fundamental distinction in the way the firms go about their business. And it has led, and it certainly led in our case, and it's led in other cases, to quite difficult integration programs as the UK firms had to understand that they were playing by a slightly different set of rules. How does the city feel to you today, culturally? Do you think this is a place that really is part of the, reflects broader British society 
adequately or is there still some way to go? Again, inevitably, my sort of starting point is what I used to know. And the thing that really strikes me now when I come to the city, which I do quite a lot, is just how, you know, if I come into the city wearing a suit and tie, I feel completely overdressed. And as recently... <laughs> you got the suit, was, though. You got the tie. It was a pandemic thing. Yeah. If you, no one's wearing if, a tie. If I, I wouldn't have, even five years ago, I would not have dreamt of coming into the city not wearing a suit and tie. And I was walking, I guess it was in 2021, I was walking down London Wall. It was a warmish day. And there was a guy walking down London Wall, and he was wearing a sleeveless uh, kind of vest speedos and flip-flops um, I thought, hang on a minute something's changed something Sachs. has changed yeah it's probably chief executive and, um, i mean there's always more to do on these things always but it's easy to take for granted the progress that's been made if you walk around the city of london today it is even compared with five or ten years ago it's completely it looks and feels completely different and i think it's partly a, a reflection of the fact that the ecosystem is just so much more varied. There are so many more different kinds of firms, employ different types of people. So many of them are truly meritocratic in trading businesses. They don't care where you went to school. They're not interested. No. All they want to know is, can you do the job? You know, can you generate revenue? And is that the influence of the American influx? It's the, it's the dominance of places like JP Morgan now around the city of London that have forced that kind of change. I mean, they already think that the Casanos or the legacy British companies have been part of that dynamic. I don't think it would ever have been the case that anyone would have gone to work at Casanova wearing Speedos, but I think that <laughs> we inevitably would have developed. I don't think it's just the American, but I just think it's the internationalization of business. It's not just America. You know, people from all over the world working here now. Richard, is that good or bad? Because it, you, I can't tell by, by hearing you speak whether the city of London has actually lost something that maybe was a differentiating factor. In financial services. Well, I mean, there's a whole different discussion about why the city of London's position is potentially has eroded, but I don't think it's got anything to do with the diversification and kind of fragmentation of the city in, in, in that respect. You know, it's an interesting one, Francine, because, yeah, if I look back in the 80s, being at Casino and being a Casino partner, it was fantastic, but it's gone. There's no point in dwelling on it or saying it's a shame or we should turn the clock back to how it used to be. And as, as I alluded to, there were lots of aspects of the firm which you wouldn't possibly go with today. So I try not to think of it that way. I mean, the whole client ethos, the whole alignment of interests that came with the old partnerships, I think was a very good thing. I think it, it served the clients very well. But again, it's history, and I don't think there's much point in, in lamenting it. Robert, Deutsche Bank is doing mm. a similar move with Numis. Yeah. What did you think when you saw the news? Numis had built a very good business and they had some very good people there. But the problem is when you have a deal drought, as you have at the moment, particularly in M&A and IPOs, these firms are almost completely reliant on M&A and IPOs. They have a secondary market broking business. But to be honest, that's kind of a break-even business over the cycle. So if there are no deals, then your profitability is hugely impacted and very quickly. And, I mean, this is what happened to, to Casanova in the uh, very early noughties. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And funnily enough, it's not uncomfortable so much because you think, oh, gosh, we're not going to make any profit, although obviously that's not great either. And Casanova was private at that point, whereas Numis had gone public, so clearly they had obligations to shareholders. The big problem, I think, is that they feel, oh, God, we can't pay our people because we haven't any profits and we're all going to lose all our people. It's very easy to lose your nerve. Now, these things are cyclical. It'll come back. We don't know quite when, but it will come back. IPOs will come back. M&A will come back. And again, profitability can be restored very quickly. But particularly if you're in the public markets, 
If you're looking ahead and there's no visibility on a pipeline and you've got no profits and your share price is going down and someone comes along and says, we'll give you a 50% premium or whatever it was, it's quite a difficult thing to turn it down. Do you believe that the IPO drought in London is cyclical or is there something more worrying going on with the London market, the flow of deals over the Atlantic? Do you see that reversing? I think it'll be cyclical to some degree, no question about it. But there's obviously something more fundamental going on. There's a sort of zeitgeist thing as well, I think. And by which I mean that it's become the thing to talk about. But the reality is, I think the decline of London's position is a result of well-intentioned, but ultimately ill-thought-out regulatory change. So we've all talked about the changes to the pension fund regulations, which has meant largely the withdrawal of pension funds from the equity markets, the decline of the size of the London market. You had changes to the regulations surrounding equity research, which meant that the economics of that were fundamentally undermined. So you got fewer analysts. That was the MIFID. Yeah, That was the European right. So you got fewer analysts. And most of the analysts that are around, particularly in the small and mid-cap area, are generalists. So there isn't a great store of deep knowledge in a lot of sectors, particularly technology, because there haven't been that many technology IPOs or that not many listed technology companies in this country. So it all adds up to a evaluation gap and a feeling on the part of management that there's a kind of risk-averse and overly price-sensitive investor culture, and there isn't a great deep well of knowledge about their business, and they feel that those uh, aspects are going to be uh, more available in, in, in the US market. I think the listing rules at the margin probably don't help, although I frankly don't think that's a huge thing. I think the governance is definitely an issue for people floating in London. I hate to say it, but I think the whole pay thing is an issue. No, people aren't paid enough. Well, no, you see, but it's very, this is why it's a difficult subject, because yeah. you can elide the pay as an issue to saying people aren't paid enough. Now, clearly, there's been huge pay inflation in chief executives and senior management of listed companies over the last 20, 30 years. And it's perfectly reasonable to be skeptical in certain sectors when someone who's running a largely domestic business says, I need to be paid the same as someone who's doing the, you know, the same job in, in New York or wherever. But the, the reality is there are businesses which, where the market for management talent is global. I've had experience of this myself, sitting on the board of a FTSE 100 company and trying to recruit a CEO, and it's extremely difficult. You have just a lot of rules that make it very difficult to pay people competitively. And, and these people are mobile. They don't owe us a living, and they can work anywhere. So that definitely is an issue, I think, for anyone thinking to list in London. So, Robert, does it mean that you that actually there's no place for a small investment bank or a boutique investment bank right now because of the rules and regulation? No, I don't think that at all. I mean, I think it depends on their, their business mix. If you look at the ecosystem in London, it's very interesting because, you got you know, you have the big investment banks and the Americans have, have won the game and that's fine. And the biggest companies go to them. You've got the sort of super boutiques, the kind of center views or the Evercores. I mean, Greenhill sold out to the Japanese, but you know, so you've got those, which are now really quite big firms in their own right and doing different things. You've got people like Simon Roby uh, doing his, his thing with Roby Warshaw extremely successfully. And then you've got the smaller brokers. As I say, the problem for the smaller brokers is that they're saddled with all the costs of being in the equities business, all the technology, the analysts, the international footprint and all this kind of stuff. But the deal flow is prim primarily domestic. So when that disappears, as I say, their profitability is, is shot to pieces. So 
at that point, they either have to try to merge with someone or they sell out or they just make sure they're well capitalized enough that they can hunker down and weather the storm. But as I say, it's easy as a commentator to say that. But when you're in the middle of it, it feels very uncomfortable. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. When you look around Europe, do you see any other rival financial centers to London emerging? There's endless debate about Paris, Frankfurt, Paris seem to have been attracting the the lion's share, at least of kind of the, the, the Wall Street banks in terms of investment post-Brexit. But it, it, that argument seems to have faded a little bit of late. I mean, do you think the city is kind of consolidating its position more? Well, getting again, used to Brexit, it's, it's, I suppose. It's, it's, it's hard to say. And, you know, as you say, there was a lot of um, sort of catastrophizing after Brexit about how, and, and, you know, fewer jobs went. I'm not sure how much comfort to take from that. I mean, again... 20 years ago, people used to talk about, you know, I, every time there was a hiccup, they'd say, oh, everyone's going to leave and go to Frankfurt. And everyone would say, really? Yeah, everyone's going to leave and go to Frankfurt. All these old Etonians are going to go to Frankfurt. I don't think so. But nowadays, the workforce in the city is much more international. It's much more polyglot. I mean, I wouldn't mind a couple of years in, uh, in Paris. I don't know in about Frankfurt? You, fr- well, I'm, I'm you not a cycle. Frankfurt girl. You could, you could cycle no. to work. Yes, I think it's a very livable city. Frankfurt. But, you know, if you, even if you look further afield, I mean, you look at places like, uh, you know, Dubai and Singapore, a lot of people going out there, it's pretty attractive. You know, you go out there, work for two or three years, don't pay any tax. So maybe Dubai, Dubai, someone like Dubai is maybe more of a pertinent question, which seems to be booming on so many levels. There's tax questions as well. Capital markets are, you know, should we be looking, we should be not so worried about Paris, we should, we should be worried about the Middle East in terms of student Well, I didn't, I mean, worried, I'm not sure is worried is the way, way I'd put it, but I think there's the, the, I think the prospect of fragmentation of people going living in different countries, particularly if you've got Nick Candy on your podcast saying how undervalued property is in, in Dubai, is, um, is much more real than it was 20, 20 or so years ago. Robert Kasnov also advised the government on a lot of its privatization campaigns in the 80s. There's talk now about privatizing less or even bring them back into the government fold. What lessons did you learn back then that could be applied now? It was a very 
disparate group of firms that were privatized through the 80s and into the early 90s. I think if you look at it now, you'd probably say that the very early ones worked out reasonably well, kind of macro standpoint, uh, in the sense that they were probably businesses that were better off in the private sector. I think later on, the barrel got scraped a bit more. And some of the businesses which were either natural monopolies probably weren't suitable candidates for privatization. I think we can all have our views about the water companies and the electricity companies. And I think one of the things that caused problems at the time was that you had management that effectively had grown up as quasi-civil servants suddenly put into the private sector, given very substantial pay increases, and then incentivized to go out and grow their non-regulated earnings. So there was a huge splurge of uh, acquisitions, many of which were value-destroying. But it's interesting because you obviously have talk at the moment about a potential retail offer at, at NatWest. And there's a sort of retro feel to that, isn't there, about back to the big campaigns of the past. And despite the number of privatizations and the fact that they were sort of priced to go, so people generally in the short term made money on them. I don't know if you remember the term stagging. Well, stagging was where you would you know, put multiple applications in and uh, sell them on the first day of dealings after the price had gone up. But I mean, uh, the, this sort of shareholding democracy idea never really took, took hold. And people are talking about it a little bit more at the moment. And I think the trouble is it's always from the point of view of the issuer or the government. There's less talk about the, the small shareholder and the investor. And I think you just have to think to yourself, is it really the right thing to incentivize a small shareholder who may not have a lot of money to put money into a single stock bank, which they almost certainly won't understand. I mean, by and large, the people who run banks don't really understand the risks they're running. So the small shareholder certainly isn't going to. And so there's a sort of slight ethical uh, dilemma there in my mind as well. But haven't we got to encourage more or wider? I mean, I remember that British camp, you know, British gas campaign, and I, you know, it did encourage, didn't it, some broader engagement with the idea of owning uh, owning equities. And I think. To your point about you know, some of the problems we've got in terms of the London market, if we had more people interested in owning shares, that would help, wouldn't it? Well, possibly at the margin, although the big shareholders, I mean, the big pools of money are the pension funds. And the pension funds, as you know, their share of, British, of equities, let alone UK equities, is vanishingly small. I can see that you could tweak the rules to, to adjust that. But I think if you were advising a friend or a relative who was not particularly affluent, you wouldn't say, well, why don't you buy some shares in NatWest or Barclays or whatever? You'd say... You might say, put your money into a well-managed uh, active fund, you know, Linsel Train or, you know, Terry Smith or something, or stick it into an ETF, diversification, all that kind of stuff. You would actually probably be trying to persuade them not to, to take on single stock risk. So I think we have to think about that aspect of it, at least as much as the benefits, so-called benefits to UK PLC. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having yeah, me on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. It helps people find the show. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix, with David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Sardi and Tiffany Choi, with additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Robert Pickering. Hi there, it's Francine Lacroix, host of In the City. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter and more. 
The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.